you see someone who is planting an IUD with the intent to hurt our own and something goes wrong and the IUD goes off and so does that person. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out there to lose it. That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, but what can you do for your country. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Sabrina Smeaton is a veteran of the Australian Army. She served in the Artillery Corps, working as a weapon locating radar operator and a Scan Eagle UAV operator. She deployed to Afghanistan in 2011. Sabrina spoke to me about her passion for military service, why she joined, her experiences in artillery and in Afghanistan, her transition coming home, and life after service. Welcome to Life on the Line. I'm Alex Lloyd, speaking today with Sabrina Smeaton. Sabrina, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Alex. Thanks for having me. Sabrina, where were you born? Saudi Arabia. And uh, what age did you move to Australia? Three, maybe four, I'd guess. I was too little, so I don't, I literally have nothing. I flew over it once as a, as a kid, looks just like a bunch of sand and that's it. (laughs) My dad was on a like a posting, I guess, uh, as a fireman in the, the British Air Force. So I wouldn't, it wasn't like a deployment style, you know, it wasn't a, a war-based venture that he was on. So I sort of refer to it more as if you got a short-term posting. So they did three months at a time because that was the longest, I believe, like you could get a visa to go there and you had to go and come back every three months. Um, so I was born there but my mom is English and my dad is Scottish so I take after my dad a lot more than my mom so if you ask me I would say I'm Australian now but my background is very Scottish I actually don't have a very big extended family but I do have four sisters and then mom dad tell me a bit more about your childhood Sabrina what was it like growing up in a uh, such a girl heavy household and what did you like to do were you good uh, young daughter were you a troublemaker my childhood was was pretty good Uh, I was quite blessed in my younger years my my parents traveled and you know took me to different places with my older sister at the time Uh, you know I went to Disneyland quite young you know England I went to Austria those kind of places but I spent most of my childhood building houses to be honest that's what I did. And I hated it at the time. Uh, I learned a lot from it, which is going to be helpful in my renovating. That's not a metaphor. That's actual building houses helping out. Yeah, that's what I did. So in the morning, I'd be like in my school uniform, but up on a cherry picker with my dad, you know, like putting tiles on roofs and all sorts of stuff. So we definitely didn't comply with OH&S, but we did our own makeshift harnesses and stuff, which probably horrify people in this day and age, but it is what it is. And uh, it was an experience. Uh, but yeah, I think I was a pretty, I was a pretty good kid. I definitely tried my best to contribute to my family, help raise my siblings. And then when I turned 18, I went and moved out and I did my own thing. Was not the most law-abiding citizen at that point. Probably drank way too much and was just a dickhead really. And it's part of the reason why I ended up joining the army, to be honest. I definitely needed to make a decision. And the choice was either to continue living a life that really wasn't serving a whole lot of purpose or to change that direction. So I joined the army for for twofold. Number one, for a better direction in life, to have more discipline, structure and contribute. And the second reason I joined is because I'm an immigrant and so is my mom and my dad and my older sister. So I believe that there was a debt to Australia to be paid. Uh, I don't think everything is just on offer for you to take as as you wish. Um, 
and yeah, for me, for me, we we had to repay for the life that we've been given. So that was in 2009. I was probably around 25, but the army definitely suits. It did. It would still suit me now, but it definitely suited me then because I am a tomboy for sure. The army definitely appealed to me in many respects. Uh, I love the discipline part. I love the the pushing of the boundaries from a physical perspective. Uh, just my own personal opinion. There'll be plenty of other people that disagree with me, but I find out of the three services you can choose from, the army is the most physically challenging and the service that will expect the most from you from a physical perspective. Uh, so that definitely had appeal to me. But then you'd what find yourself trucked off to Kapuka. And then when you're in this environment, you're wanting to give back, you say, but also it probably suited you in terms of giving some structure, some direction. It did. Yeah. Um, I didn't have, for someone that wanted to repay a debt to a country for a very nice reason, I also had a part of my personality that just didn't have a lot of time for, you know, being bossed around and told what to do. And I was, I just had that kind of like dickhead mentality in a way that like I was going to do whatever Sabrina wanted to do. And then obviously Kapuka, there's no room for that. So I was determined to do well. You know, I didn't find out till later that my my best friend, <laughs> Helen, and my family um, had like a betting pool going on because none <laughs> of them thought I would make it through <laughs> through Kabuka, um, not because of ability, but because of attitude. Um, and in hindsight, when I look back on the attitude I had in that kind of like early to mid twenties, it was less than desirable in a way, but at the same time, I'm very, uh, I can be very disciplined and very stubborn for the right reasons and very determined. So with that in mind, I was determined to do very well, um, I was not going to break or falter. Like, yes, I made mistakes and I got marched to the CSM's office one day because I had too many negative performance reviews, but just, they were for little things that in, I understand the task at the time, you know, like my brass wasn't good enough or, uh, um, you know, my uniform had a crinkle in it or something and I was just like five strikes and you're out. So, um, but he was a very nice CSM and I, I got off quite lightly he just gave me a fine which I was very happy with um I didn't have to march up and down the square which was great I uh I definitely liked it uh and I was also I think my stubbornness and ego in a way worked well for me when it came to being intimidated enough but not intimidated too much so someone can stand in my face and to this day you can scream at me and you won't break me like <clears throat> in my head it's kind of I'm mentally challenging you to see if you can keep going to the point that I break. So even though I think at times I would have felt quite like intimidated, it was my stubbornness and determination to do well kind of prevailed in that respect. So no crying at work for me. Besides not uh, loving the ironing and the brass polishing and the shoe shining and those aspects, in terms of the soldiering skills, did you find yourself taking to that? Did that resonate with you? Yeah, I loved it. I loved it and I still do love it. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. But again, it is that like, it's just that I, from a, a, I'm by no means a feminist and, you know, but from a female perspective, I felt that a lot of the challenges put in front of you were more, that were more geared, I think, towards men. And that's not a, a you know, for, it's not like a gender thing. It's just the army started out being men. So, you know, it was all designed for men. So for me, I found it physically quite taxing, but awesome at the same time because it was able to do it all. Um, but it didn't come without its own injury though, but uh, <laughs> that's okay. It happens, I guess. What was the gender ratio like in uh, 2009? In my group, uh, I think there was four girls and maybe 20-ish, 20-ish men, boys, males. Yeah, about that. And you get through Kapuka, what's next for you? I went on to IETs. So I went to Pakapanyul and I actually went to Pakapanyul with an injury. So I'd pushed myself really hard at Kapuka with, with training. I got the PT award at, at, at Kapuka. So um, I was quite happy about that one because I worked very hard for that. But I also got a hernia from pack marching 
So you're only meant to carry um, no more than I believe it's one third of your body weight. At the time I weighed kind of like 60 kilos and my pack was around the 38 to 40 mark. So way too heavy. Now in the army's defense, they probably told me or told us only carry this, but for me, it was, well, if the men are carrying X, I'm carrying X. So uh, I completed every, I was actually the only female to complete every single pack march with a pack. If at the end of the day, you want to be considered uh, an equal teammate, you have to do equal work. So that was my perspective. But it meant that I did go to Pakapanyal with a hernia that they originally uh, were going to make me operate on at Kapuka, but I managed to get them to not do that so I could continue on with the same crew that I'd gone in with. Um, so my start at IETs was a little bit challenging because I was carrying an injury that I didn't really speak about because I was too scared to get like put into holding platoon. Um, but had an operation there, <laughs> and this is, again, Scottish stubbornness. I had an operation on a Saturday morning, and then I discharged myself somehow. I don't know how I did it, Sunday afternoon, and then I was back to work on Monday. You're speaking with someone born in Scotland with Scottish ancestry, so I understand. Carry on. Because, <laughs> you know, you've got pride, but it was, it was uh, hindsight's a wonderful thing. It wasn't the smartest decision to make um, because that injury – was hard to cover, you know, come back from. But um, I did, I'm quite proud of the effort I put in and I, I, I didn't get into trouble at all at Pakapanyal. So that was refreshing because I, I got my ass kicked a few times at Kapuka. Um, but I found initially I hit my first kind of wall when it came to being a female in artillery. So I was the first female to do my job. I was hit with that, you better not cry to get out of things. You know, you better not cry to find a way to make something easier because that's happened before and we're not going to let that fly again. And that was never something I was ever going to do. But it was almost like I was, I had to climb this hill of being the first female to do it. But then I also had to shake off the predetermined opinion that some people had that girls cry every time it gets hard which just simply isn't true. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having emotion, of course, and we need to be empathetic to people's pain, but I definitely think you need to have an element of strength about you, no matter what job you're in, and always lead with that. But IETs taught me a lot, and I actually I gained so much just from that period of time. Um, and the biggest thing I think I, I, I learned was that there is an expectation and you need to make sure you excel, you know, and try your best because at the end of the day, that really is all somebody can ask of you. And that's what matters, I think, the most, irrespective of performance reviews or where you sit in, in a class. Sometimes I was at the top of my class, sometimes not so much, uh, but I always knew that I did the very best I could and then I took that with me into my actual job at Inogra. I know the uh, intake of women into artillery corps was would only been two or three years, I think, off the top of my head ahead of when you joined. So it was still newish. Some would have gone through, and so there's lots of uh, yeah firsts to be had there. And uh, you mentioned there that you were the first trainee for your role. What was that role? Sorry. So I was a weapon locating radar operator. And for civilians, what does that mean? So basically, we are operating a a radar that will pick up and track airborne weapon systems. So I, I suppose for a civilian, essentially the idea is we find out where like the rocket is coming from. We're able to then track like the area in which it was fired from and then alert people to the area in which it's going. I guess that's the kind of general way to describe it. Pretty important job in a crisis. Good to know. How'd you find then Anogra and uh, where you posted to there? So I was posted to 20 STA at Inogra um, and I went to 131 Battery. I absolutely loved it. Nobody spoke to me for the first probably two to three months outside of what they had to, which I found quite funny because I'd sit there like a complete loner with zero friends eating my packed lunch, which probably didn't help my ability to get friends by sitting there with like a cut sandwich and a primer and stuff. But, you know, I thought it was cool at the time. 
Um, but it really was just about um, earning respect. It, it, it was not just given, you know, I had to, I had to earn it and I was happy to do that. You know, I, I figured that I had an opportunity to pave the way for myself and for any other women that came into my job and really demonstrate to everybody that I was just as capable as the next person. Now that in saying that though, that does have limitations. I don't believe that women are physically capable of doing the same thing as men. Physiologically, it just doesn't work that way. But I think, you know, if you're looking at what is reasonable for you and capability wise, if you're capable of doing something, then you should absolutely do it. Uh, and, you know, I was definitely tested, I think, from um, a mental perspective, because I wanted to be liked, you know, I, I didn't want, I didn't want people to dislike me based on gender. But in saying that, though, um, it made me a better person because I just had to work for it. I didn't get any handouts. So I'm really grateful for that, especially considering my less than desirable attitude prior to going into the army. So, but the, the men that I worked with ended up being the most incredible group of men. And to this day, they still have a huge impact on my life. Let's jump ahead to 2011 when you're first told that you'll be deploying to Afghanistan? Yeah, so we actually found out quite significantly earlier. Um, our lead-up training to deployment was about, I think from memory, it was about 13 months of lead-up training, to be honest. Um, so it all started when I um, was popped, my name was put forward to um, qualify or get qualifications for the Scan Eagle, which was an unmanned aerial vehicle or UAV for short. So I was super lucky because I, I didn't think I'd get an opportunity to do that because majority of the candidates for that course were chosen from 132 Battery that did the meteorology. I was super excited. Yeah, I actually did struggle though, full transparency with the course conducted from Bowie. There was just a few concepts that for some reason I just couldn't grasp. But again, I was very blessed that I, I was given the help that I needed. And once I got over that, that speed bump, uh, you know, actually became very confident in what I was doing. We did a whole heap of lead up training and different uh, field phases. And then they did a selection panel for the final trip, which I was again, you know, very lucky to have made. And then that saw us leave mid 2011. I don't think anybody joins the military and then becomes qualified and puts in the lead up time irrespective of whether you're going to deploy or not like you don't do that just for the sake of doing it and I think that's what can often be missed by either civilians or family members when they ask the question of like why do you want to deploy why do you want to go away why do you want to put yourself in danger and the best way for me that I used to describe it to people in my life was like imagine being say a someone that goes to university to study law and you put in years of time, but you never actually go to court and use it for the, the purpose in which you intended. For me, I was stoked to go. I, uh, I didn't actually tell my family because of the circumstance at the time. I didn't think it was the best decision to make. So I told a very big white lie and said to them I was going to America. So my family thought I was going to Arizona for nine and a half months. Um, so that was interesting trying to keep that up because every time I ring, I'd have to look at the time in Arizona and the weather in Arizona, uh, which didn't line up with Afghanistan weather patterns at all. But yeah, I loved it. I, I wasn't scared at all. The first moment of fear I had was when we arrived and maybe it was the third night and the base was rocketed. That was probably the first time that it set in my mind like you could actually get quite hurt with what we're doing. To give context to the Arizona thing too, the reason I chose Arizona is while uh, I was part of UAV Group 9, whilst UAV Group 9 was in Afghanistan, they were running a shadow course to learn the next UAV platform coming through, and that was in Arizona. Besides that early evening rocketing session how did you find settling into routine on base what is your day-to-day -day look like um so I spend a lot of time in in the gym um I, I had done that for several years leading up to when I went to Afghanistan so 
pretty much I worked, trained, and ate, and that was my life. Our shift started, I believe, at 4 a.m. We were either at a 3 a.m. or a 4 a.m. shift start. We would be on shift for about anywhere from 14 to 16 hours. Uh, we would get, be given breaks in that shift, and most of the time, to be honest, I went to the gym in that break, and then when work finished, I went back to the gym, and then I ate, and then was uh, my sleep. Actually, as I went further through deployment, sleep became more difficult. Uh, I don't know if it was environmental factors or just that our job was quite stressful, and it just, uh, for me anyway, personally, I felt an incredible weight of responsibility for what I needed to do and that there was no room for error. Uh, and I think that weighed on me. So to be honest, my sleep got down to maybe three hours a night, maybe four. Tell me more about that responsibility and the cause of the stress. Tell me more about the job that was uh, troubling you so. We have a few primary objectives. One of them was pattern of life, which is very mundane. Uh, there's not stress in that particular portion because you're literally spending weeks weeks like on end hovering over the one part one particular area and you are literally just seeing what people are doing day in day out daytime nighttime and you you need to create that pattern and you can't create that pattern unless you watch what they're doing for an extended period of time that wasn't ideal but our second objective and this isn't in order of importance because I would put the number two as the number one priority, was to do clearances. So we needed to uh, go up and down stretches of road, um, stretches of desert to see if we could find anything that looked suspicious, if there was any area of dirt that had been turned up recently, like anything that would indicate to us that there's potentially, you know, an IED um, that has been put in there, if there is any signs of any chance of an ambush, you know, anything along those lines. It was our job to try everything we, we could do to find them and keep, you know, every soldier on the ground safe. So using the drones for that big picture, watching the local population and looking for disturbances, changes in the pattern of life, as you say, to is there a warning sign of something here we should be aware of? And then to that immediate practical use of you're using the Scan Eagle drone to check this stretch of dirt, this stretch of road and it's a proofing ground for soldiers of ours that might be going through stuff like that. So you're the, you're the real sort of uh, modern technology advanced scout, if you like, in some respects. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as you can imagine that that is incredibly important, you know, out of everything that we did, that to me was the one I found the greatest sense of responsibility while conducting uh, you know, we did we did other missions that were, you know, equally of importance, but I suppose emotionally attached different feelings. Uh, you know, we worked with some local nationals there that we would be able to track them and see, you know, they would be given X amount of money and they would go and, and purchase weapons and then we would be tracking them. So see who it is they purchased the weapons from and then we follow that person and hopefully we follow them back to a cache where they've got more weapons hidden and then we can go and take the ball back. And then another one that I find was probably from a mental health perspective, the one that carried the, the heaviest amount of weight later on was when we watched firefights happening, when we watched buildings that had, you know, men, women, children, we watched them go in and then the building is blown up and there's no one coming out. And there's really nothing you can do. You know, you are literally just watching death and there's no solution. So that, that to me was, was very, very troubling. And it's only because you, you, you just can't do anything. You're literally helpless. And did you talk about these feelings at the time with your colleagues and so on, or was it just an understood part of the job? I think we spoke about, there was a few moments there where the casualties for civilians was high and that we, we felt an element of like real sadness. There was the other side of the fence that is, I suppose, can be a little bit confronting, especially to civilians to understand. But there, there is also that side of the coin when you see someone who is planting an IED with the intent to hurt our own and something goes wrong 
and the IED goes off and so does that person. For me, I didn't feel sadness at all for that person. I almost felt, and it sounds like sick and twisted, but I almost felt a level of joy because it's either you or them and I'm so much I'm so much more at peace with it being you because you're the one doing the wrong thing to somebody else. But, you know, later on when you, when you do engage in conversations and especially from a psychological perspective, that's not a healthy mindset to have either. But when you're in a situation and when you're in a place like Afghanistan, you really have to just find your own way, I think, to be able to deal with it. And I don't know if it's changed now, but back then, if you were having any troubles, there's no way you're going to talk about them. Because if you are, it's not going to turn out well for you. And everybody knew that. And no matter how much we wanted to pretend that it was another way, it just wasn't. You know, any issues that you had from a psychological perspective or a mental health perspective, you kept that shit on lockdown because it would just go against you otherwise. I think, though, that emotion you describe is to a degree understandable. And you're having, especially in the moment, you're having to compartmentalize and almost dehumanize the enemy a bit because that's how getting through that kind of psyche of war is achievable but also you're deployed in a period where we are as an allied force having exceptional high number of kia i think you might be there at the highest period of casualties for australian forces yeah and so you're seeing your own number of ramp ceremonies and things like that and the results of what an ied can do so having it thrown back at them so to speak is an understandable emotion you're feeling because you're also seeing the very real consequences of that when uh, those IEDs are planted and they're not found. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's how I, how I justified it and compartmentalized it. And when I, you know, that particular incident, because we were watching, like we happened to be over this person, you know, like watching the live feed. So it was something that was discussed, you know, um, amongst the people on shift. And, you know, we very much felt the same, you know, that war is fought for many different reasons. And, you know, whether we like it or not, both sides believe strongly in their perspective. But I think when it comes down to the actual killing of people, you can't help but just always side with your perspective, you know, and I think that's just what it came down to at the end of the day. They were on the wrong side and we were on the right side. So we protect our own and whatever happens to them is something outside of our control. Did you attend many ramp ceremonies in your time over there? Yeah. Yeah, we did. We had a few, which was very sad. Yeah. It is beautiful though, uh, what the military do. I, I don't know if the families of those that are lost are ever really told the effort that goes in and and the the respect and love that is given to every soldier who is returned home in a way that nobody wants to have happen but it's yeah yeah it's it's very moving and very you'll never forget it we were talking earlier about your the attitude you had in life at the point in time you joined up and where your general mental headspace was at and then you've had a couple of years of training of being a soldier of having that structure that purpose that drive that success as well and success being a positive reinforcement and now you're deployed and you're having these you're seeing these things you're experiencing these things do you feel like you grew up quickly did it shape you in a marked way yeah very much so i think to be honest the i owe the the better parts of of who i am from a from a maturity and an adult perspective to the army for all of its mundane repetitive and sometimes non-logical way of thinking the army did tremendous things for me as a person and yeah you absolutely when you are carrying a weapon and you are you are taught skills that come with an immense level of responsibility for majority of the people that will definitely make you a better person it will make you more mature it will make you more accountable for your actions and just give you a sense of respect and responsibility that perhaps you didn't have prior We've talked about some of the challenges you faced on this deployment, but I imagine there were some highs as well as the lows. What do you think were some high points or some lighter, funnier moments in your time in Afghanistan? You know, for the better part, everything about 
Afghanistan was tremendous. No, it was not all fun and it was not all laughs, but we just got to experience something that will forever change us who, you know, as people and, and who we are and how we look at the world, how we look at, you know, the way that people are treated and kindness and what just small acts can do for humanity, you know, but we also got to, you know, I was mind blown at the time that when we arrived, it was like 55 degrees and we we're in the desert. And then before too long, it's like minus 11, it's snowing, freezing, freaking cold. And, you know, we're doing war-based activities, but building snowmen at the same time, you know, like it's, it's hard to kind of put the two together, you know, that you can have a world of destruction going on around you, but you'll find small pieces of childlike joy, you know? And so I think that's what it was. It was just about being with friends, you know, or, or meeting new friends. Some of the best friends in my life I have now actually met in, in Afghanistan, some of them American, you know, I've attended their weddings in America and, you know, my girlfriend, Steph, who was a, uh, an American ex-soldier turned contractor at the time, still a huge part of my life, you know? So, there was lots of fun to be had. Um, you just had to put the effort in, to be honest. So you mentioned earlier that uh, the other UAV team was training up on Shadow. So that's the next UAV model that's Correct. coming through. It's 2012. So you probably would have been the last Scan Eagle team. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So when UAV Group 9 left Afghanistan, we essentially packed up the UAV and brought it home along with Boeing. And how did you find coming home after such a long period away? And you're coming home to a family that still think you've been uh, swanning around in America as well. What was that transition like? I was actually quite scared and quite nervous as to what my family would say because I wasn't sure if they would understand that I did it with the best of intentions. And the reason I did that is that I didn't think my family was mentally and emotionally at a time in their life where they could have handled that burden and that pressure and also the stress I think that comes along with it and my siblings were quite young at the time and they just didn't need that uh, but I made them a video actually that took them through the whole experience from you know getting ready and pre-deployment training through to the deployment itself and I just played that and then kind of like snuck to the back of the room and just watched them and it was beautiful to watch and you saw like this emotional experience they went through from like even though they didn't see or didn't have to go through me being over there, you know, they were able to feel the highs and the lows of my trip and I could watch it all over their face. Um, but, you know, coming back and seeing family and friends was great. I found the hardest part was going back to work. And why was that? Uh, I don't believe that our unit was adequately prepared to have people return. And there was that kind of bridge between you know, Scan Eagle and Shadow. So we're not doing Scan Eagle anymore and we're not qualified on Shadow because that was, you know, an American-based course to do. So we were essentially just doing superfluous crap, you know, um, switching things from one bay to the other, sweeping floors, you know, just I felt quite pissed off actually because I'd gone from a job that was important and we gave everything we had we pushed to the limit on our capability. Uh, and then I felt like we just came home and I felt like an apprentice again, to be honest, you know, and it wasn't that we were better than anyone else, but surely with what we've done for our work, we could be put to better use. And I definitely wasn't alone in that feeling either. Well, you've gone from having such a sense of purpose of pride in what you're doing. It's become a key part of your identity that you are this UAV operator doing this important job for your country in Afghanistan and then to come home and cool here's a broom and there's a dusty floor it's a, it's such a contrast it's not you, you would have expected a I guess a come down or a withdrawal effect so to speak or a hangover from it maybe um in a way but that kind of it's such a drop off a cliff's edge and yeah and it really was and I I couldn't understand it and I didn't, I didn't quite grasp at the time why I felt that way or why we collectively felt that way. And, you know, as time goes by and I'm a massive advocate for, you know, 
mental health and well-being for you know any kind of psychiatric care that you might need and you know I've only I've learned over the time through speaking to my psych in particular that it was just we went from such a high level of operation you know and output and and stress to just like nothing you know and and that was we were used to a certain level you know and then we're not performing at that level anymore so you kind of just feel a bit lost in a way I think and when you feel lost, I feel you can go one of two ways, either kind of into sadness or you can get pissed off. And for majority of it, it was the pissed off way. How long does this go on for, this sort of dissatisfaction? And do you make changes in your life to cope with that? Or how did you address that? Or are you just building up this frustration? Well, I'll tell you right now, I definitely didn't deal with it very well. <laughs> um, I drank, to be honest. I drank heaps. And, you know, I remember sitting there one day at home and I used to love going to work like I loved it I was super sprightly at work early you know having the time of my life but I remember laying in bed on this one particular day and I was like oh I wonder if I like broke my leg could I get out of going to work you know like I don't want to do anything too serious but it, it has to be serious enough that means I don't have to go in, you know, otherwise I'd just be given like light duties and that'd suck too. So these are the thoughts that were going through my head. Now I didn't, I didn't want to self-harm in any way, you know, not that that wasn't what I was wanting to do. What I was trying to do is get out of a routine that I hated, you know, that I just thought was shit. And it just went on and it stayed that way for a while. And then I remember going to ask for a conversation with um with a sergeant of mine, really good dude, Sergeant Kevin Jones. He was really good dude. I sat down and I just said, oh, Sergeant, do you mind if I shut the door? And he knew. He just stared at me and he's like, oh, yeah, of course. And we'd just been on deployment. You know, he knew me well. And I shut the door and I sat down and I just burst into tears. And keep in mind, this is a girl that believes very strongly that you don't cry at work unless you've got a injury of some kind and it was I had just gotten to that point that I was so angry and so pissed off and I didn't know what to do and it was so out of character for me you know I'm normally the bubbly joking chick that puts on a wicked Christmas and has the time of her life so it was very it was nothing like the person that I used to be like it was polarizingly different and I was able to hide it for a certain period of time. And then I think at this point when I sat down and I spoke to Jonesy, it was because I'd written, I'd reached that threshold of being able to pretend. But then that kind of started an avalanche that maybe at the time I wish I hadn't done. The army at the time, again, I I can't speak for what they're like now, but they handled mental health. It was just deplorable. It was done crap. You know, there was no, there was no real processes. There was, it was still that mentality of like a mental health is a weakness. I am quite willing to say that that's, that mentality really went quite high up. No specific person, but just that mentality, you know, it was a... That was the culture. Yeah, and it is a culture and it is fucked. It really is. Like it is so bad, you know, and I thought at the time maybe it's because I'm a girl. I'm in artillery, this is an all-man corps, like maybe I'm just weak because I'm a girl. And then I went to speak to the psych um, at the RAP and by this time, by this point, I was kind of somewhat okay with the fact that I wasn't okay but I was going to start to deal with it essentially. And I saw a mate of mine who I respect dearly to this day sitting in his car staring into nothingness with just this blank look on his face. And I guess I just knew there wasn't something right. And I knocked on his window and I jumped in his car. I'm like, you're right, man. And it just like had tears streaming down his face, you know, and I said, oh, dude, what's wrong? And he sort of said, oh, I'm here to see psych. And at this point I knew this person wasn't quite at the stage in their realisation that something was wrong that I was. So I was like, oh, dude, man, like, so am I. And I I shared, you know, I said, this is what I've been doing. Like, I've been getting drunk all the time. I've been trying to visualise ways to not have to show up to this place anymore. He said that he was exactly the same and that he'd he'd reached out for some help and kind of got laughed at, to be honest. And at that point, that's when I realised this wasn't a gender thing. This is a system thing. 
What happened next for you, Sabrina? How did you pick yourself up out of that? To be honest, I didn't. I continued to just like fake it. I tried really hard. Um, got given two weeks of psych leave. But then there was a breakdown in more sort of chain of command breakdown and people people were informed of the fact I was on psych leave and that that shouldn't have gotten out. You know, the only, no, no one else should have known. And then I found out about it. So then that plummeted me even more because my, my secret that I desperately tried to just keep and only share with those that I felt safe to share with was out. And it was very confronting and there was really nothing. There, the, honestly, I exhausted the psych visits I was allowed to have. And then it was the perspective was like, well, you're going to need to deal with this on your own time because now you're encroaching on work time. But, you know, I'd not ever gotten in trouble and I wanted it to stay that way. I, I wanted to finish my military career not being charged with anything. So I just kind of shut my mouth, to be honest. Um, I took a posting to Pakapanyo, which is, you know, not the greatest of places to go. But um, my partner at the time lived in Victoria and my, my family were here. So I figured that if there was any way to try to get out of this hole, maybe it was to rely on my family. Um, maybe that would work and it didn't because I didn't share anything I didn't talk to them I pretended again everything was okay you're talking a lot about recognition and I guess validation vindication of uh, mental health and it is something we're seeing in conversation a lot more obviously the royal commission into veteran and defense suicide is uh, one aspect of that and the dial is shifting maybe too slowly but it is shifting on conversations on that how have you found and we'll backtrack to you leaving the army what you're doing today in a moment but how have you found I guess reflecting and talking with others that you served with on how that's changed uh, your mental health has obviously um, changed over time from being in that situation to now but the looking back and reflecting on your own mental health journey that of your peers where are you and your peers at today how do you look back on that you know much like me as time goes by and people become more comfortable with the fact that there is a problem the more you start to hear about it and as I sit and reflect on it having this conversation with you majority of people were screwed to be honest and some some worse than others some aren't here anymore you know because that's the extent that they were broken to and you know it is a very sad fact when you lose more men and women to suicide because of war-based experiences post-war than you do in the actual war zone itself. Like when you think about that, if that doesn't shake people up to wake the fuck up, I don't know what else will, you know, and it's, we have learned to find some tools enough to get by. You know, I don't encourage people to take my method, the like fake it till you make it method, because it put me in a really dark place that I wouldn't want anybody to be in, you know, but you definitely, you find ways to be okay with the fact that you're not okay, essentially. And then, you know, acknowledgement of having shitty days, I think is really important. A really good sort of piece of advice that I was given is to just, you know, sit in it. If you feel down, that's okay. You know, if you would like to sit and cry, that's okay too. You know, whatever, emotion you're feeling to just be okay with feeling that because otherwise what happens is we either get angry at ourselves for feeling that or we try to pretend it's not there and it just gets worse until eventually it just explodes the aftermath of that is never good either um but i think as a whole most people i have deployed with have found ways and strategies to move forward and progress the best that they can in their life I just wish that these resources and tools were made more readily available and that people wouldn't have to suffer for so long before they can start to have a significant turnaround. I agree. And I think the more we have these conversations, the more we can hopefully shift the dial on that. So Sabrina, you joined the military in 2009, you deploy mid 2011, which is sort of, I guess, the peak or um, peak point, peak highlight of your career back home, April, 2012. And I think we can say the rest of 2012 was uh, the low point of your career, such a sharp contrast to go from something so high to something so low. You discharge in 2013. 
tell me about your life since then. What have you gone on to do career-wise? How have you, I guess, built yourself as a veteran and civilian in the over the last nine years? Coming out of the military, I struggled a lot. And it wasn't because I was institutionalized because I just, I simply wasn't. I wasn't, I don't believe I was in long enough. You know, it was like four and a half years, give or take a bit. I don't think that is long enough to be quote unquote institutionalized, but I, I missed the structure and the system and the discipline and the challenges that the army presented, whether it be a physical or, or a mental challenge from, and I don't mean a mental health, I mean actually mentally challenging you. It was really tough. You know, I think to be really honest, only in the last sort of few years have I kind of found my feet, I think. Career-wise, no matter what I did, I was forever feeling like it was never going to be enough, like I was never going to be enough. And that got in the way of me and my work for, for ages. And, you know, I was diagnosed with anxiety and PTSD and secondary depression. And although I don't believe in, in putting labels to things, I definitely believe in trying to have a better understanding of the variables that you're working with. And, you know, I, I couldn't understand why when I would do, I, I, you know, I worked for Anytime Fitness, for example, and I was the best club manager Anytime Fitness had ever had. Like my performance and my numbers were like nobody else even came close. But yet I was constantly worried and nervous every day that I wasn't enough and that I wasn't going to be enough till the point that I had like, I'd go to the bathroom and, and I'd literally have tears about it. And again, I don't cry you know, over that kind of thing. So I really struggled. Um, But I was uh, working and still do work with my psych and he's amazing. And then I've put my time into a company called EPA Health, which is uh, exercise physiology based. And the whole point of using an exercise physiologist is to get you moving, to get you back into a gym, to get you into a hydrotherapy pool, you know, to use exercise in a way that is going to better your life. So for me, exercise became my mental health care plan. Uh, But a lot of people don't necessarily know what to do, how to do it, uh, especially military when they're trying to train and, and exercise within parameters of an injury, whether that be a mental one or a physical one. So exercise physiology is a fantastic tool and resource to use, you know, and for anyone that's got a recognized injury, this is something they can access for free and have part of their routine in their life, you know, and try to help get them from point A to point B. And then if they need some other resources to get from point B to point C, you know, we really try to help navigate that and steer them in the right direction. But yeah, and we, we, we as, a, as a company, we're, we're almost at the million-dollar mark for donated healthcare. Not all military personnel can get it yet. Looking big picture, I guess now, Sabrina, how are you in yourself today? I mean, we're recording this a few days after Are You OK Day. How do you look back on your journey over the last number of years? How do you reflect on your time in the military and how do you feel in your own skin today? The most important part of that question to highlight is the how do you feel today in this very moment? Because I can only speak for myself, but how I feel can very much vary day to day. And it is one of the things that I can find most challenging about trying to fit into anything really, whether it's into a, like a, a work routine or if you're volunteering, you know, like I do some volunteer work or if you're talking about, you know, gym routine, because any number of factors can happen that can just derail, you know, and you go from being great to just not and you can't figure out where it went wrong. You know, this week's a bit of a tough week. We had a really incredible soldier that we uh, were blessed enough to have. He came over from the from the British Army and joined the Australian Army and he was one of the funniest men I've ever met. Unfortunately, he passed away in the last two weeks, so we will be conducting a military funeral for him this week. So, you know, this particular week of weeks, it makes you think back. You know, we have a, a bit of a group chat going where we've shared pictures and memories of him. 
So, you know, the general consensus besides the sadness we feel is we've all taken a trip down memory lane. A lot of that can be good, but it can also be very dangerous because it can remind you of things that perhaps you didn't deal with, things that you've just pushed down real deep, hoping that it will never come up again. For the better part, I spend a lot of my time doing things that people might think are a bit fluffy. You know, I do daily gratitudes because it can be so easy to go down that rabbit hole of, of negativity. Now, some days in life, things happen and, and it's crap and no amount of gratitude is going to pull you out of it. But generally speaking, I try to remind myself every day of three things. And if you do it every day, you run out of the superfluous things like, oh, I'm grateful to live in Queensland. I'm grateful that I live near the beach. You know, and you've got to really dig deep to think about what you have in life that you are thankful for. So I do things like that. I don't, I don't drink anymore. Didn't really serve me very well. You know, I, I exercise, I set, you know, goals. I did 75 hard. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but anyone who's listening 75 hard is a brilliant tool to utilize uh, to give yourself some discipline and guidance and and something to hold yourself accountable to in life and it's free to do and I just try to bring in as much good that I can into my life because some days we live in a world that's pretty dark well my condolences for your loss Sabrina and thank you for sharing those reflections Sabrina thank you for all your reflections today for your candor for your service and for your storytelling and for your time it's been great having you on the show. Appreciate that. Thank you. And thank you so much. It takes uh, a lot of time and resources for you to do this. You've been doing it for five years now. Six. It's a lot of hours and a lot of a lot of output. And I'm sure like many people's craft out there, we see the end product and a tiny little snippet of what goes into it. But I have no doubt there is an abundance of work, time and resources that you put into this and it's incredible what you do and you ask for nothing. We're very lucky. That's very kind, Sabrina. Thank you. I'm Alex Lloyd and you've been listening to Life on the Line. If you enjoyed this episode, check out in Season 5 my conversation with another Artillery Corps Afghanistan veteran, number 110, Carly Box. I literally panned forward and I still can't believe this happened in broad daylight to two locals with shovels digging a hole on the road. The explosive device was big enough that it would have taken out three quarters of the convoy. And for more of a deep dive on veteran mental health, have a listen to the recent conversation I had with Wes H. Hennessy and Renee Wilson in Panel Veteran Suicide. It's not a job, it's a lifestyle and you're asked to do things that no one else is asked to do. We want something that's lasting, that's credible, that's fixed, that's enduring. Get on with it. This is no longer in the too hard basket because people are dying. Follow this show on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod and on LinkedIn at Thistle Productions. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. And you can email us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thank you for listening. And lest we forget. <laughs>